Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. John wanted to talk today about a case that has been on our docket for almost four years now. This is uh, Raul Macanosa versus the city of Coral Gables uh, down in down in Florida. We uh, this case started in Miami-Dade County in the trial court down there in front of uh, Judge Cinnamon, I think it was, if I remember correctly. And we're now up to the Intermediate Court of Appeals uh, in Florida. We, we lost this, this, uh, this case involving automated license plate readers and whether or not they violate your, uh, your right to privacy uh, under, the, under the Fourth Amendment. And uh, I think that we'll see, John, whether or not the, the Intermediate Court of Appeals is, it takes a, a warmer view here uh, than the trial court did. We may have to get up to the to the Florida Supreme Court uh, before we're able to vindicate our clients' uh, interests here. But for those who have not been following uh, this case, uh, our client is a is a resident of Coral Gables, Florida. He likes to, to drive around uh, often with his dog in the in the in the passenger seat, riding shotgun for him. And he uh, he noticed that the city had put up these automated license plate readers, you know, not just in one or two spots, but every major intersection in the city. And they were tracking uh, his movements. And when he when he came into uh, did, did a FOIA request and obtained the information that the that the city had on him, he came to discover that they had a, a ream of information with pictures and where he was in the city in his car at particular times and dates. And if you aggregate this information over a three year period, and they were they they were and are continuing to collect this information for a three year period. You obtain a lot of information about someone's whereabouts and patterns and habits and not just where they work and where they go to, to church or synagogue or what have you, where you know, what doctors they go to, what hobbies they have, maybe who they're seeing on the side. I mean, there's a whole lot of information that 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 comes out like where their weekly poker game is, John. I, you know, I don't know uh, all the different things that can be revealed by by tracking someone's automobile, but it's got to be uh, an amazing amount of of information that an individual is not intending to make public. And again, it's the case, certainly, that if you're on the street in your car, you have a little bit of a reduced sense of privacy. And we're not talking about whether or not revealing that one piece of information is a violation of your privacy. We're talking about whether the aggregate is, again, warrantless, as we were just talking about in the last segment, John. This is a warrantless search warrantless obtaining of information about you and your whereabouts by by the government and the uh the issue first of all is whether or not our client has standing to challenge the government's uh, surveillance of his movements uh, over time and then whether or not uh the capturing of of this data by the automated license plate readers violates his reasonable expectation of privacy 
and is a warrantless Fourth Amendment search. And we we've just filed our reply brief in the in the court, so it's all uh, the briefing is all done now. It's all going to be uh, teed up for the court's consideration. And you know, our belief is that the Fourth Amendment does protect people from this sort of long-term government surveillance. And and by the way, if it doesn't. Boy, that's bad news, John, because that's going to open the door to this face recognition technology, the kind of uh, the, the kind of governmental surveillance that you have in places like Hong Kong, where the people are carrying umbrellas around even when it's not raining in order to have some privacy from the government. And I can't imagine that we would get to that place here in the United States. But this is the kind of case that's going to keep us from getting there. We need to recognize that the Fourth Amendment protects innocent conduct and innocent people from government surveillance without a warrant. And if the if the courts don't respect this and don't understand what we're trying to do with cases like Makanosa, then we're going to we're going to take another step down the road toward that kind of Orwellian uh, Orwellian state. Me- Mexi- Mexican Gulf, uh, same thing. I, I said practically the same thing in my appeal. Absolutely, and and that's the that's the case for those who haven't been following, where uh, where John is is suing uh, NOAA and some other uh, government agencies uh, who are trying to to force GPS devices on the on uh, charter vessels in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's a similar sort of issue we're pursuing for similar reasons, and you know, fortunately the the Supreme Court precedent on this in recent years is is pretty good. Uh, there's a case called Jones and a case called Carpenter. And, and these cases suggest that you can't track someone for long periods of time uh, without a warrant, whether it's by putting a GPS device on their car or whether it's by uh, obtaining uh, cell site location information from their, uh, from their uh, cell phone provider. Uh, you, you have to have a warrant if you're going to do that for any lengthy period of time at all. Certainly three years is, is well beyond uh, the kind of time periods that were talked about in Jones uh, and Carpenter. And so the only question is whether this ALPR type data is in some way different from cell site location information. Uh, and, and John, our argument would be that it's actually more specific. The cell site location information doesn't tell with specificity exactly uh, where you are because it, it gives a, a, it depends a little bit on the density, I guess, of, of, the, of the cell towers in the area where you are. But it, uh, uh, it tends to give kind of a, uh, a, a range of location or kind of a wedge of location where you might be. Well, these ALPR cameras, they take a picture, tells exactly where you were and when you were there in your vehicle uh, with a photo and sometimes a photo of you and your dog in the case of our client. So very specific information. And what the, you know, what the, one of the things that the city has said is, well, they're not doing a search until they actually go into the database and that they've never done a search on our client, therefore uh, his privacy has never been been violated. Uh, but I don't know, John, how you feel about that. You think it's perfectly okay for the government to just have all the information in the world about you as long as they never actually search it? <laughs> that- I, I, I think I think that it's it's not, because here's the thing. Not only do they have the material, but they also have algorithms to, to block it. And I will, I will tell you, you know, Everyone says, oh, this is only if you're up to no good. But one of the things that's going on right now, right, and all the great and good at the New York Times and the Washington Post and everywhere else is saying that uh, they don't want Google, for instance, 
to to keep information on when women go to abortion clinics, right? And right. there's a thousand different things like that. That's the one that's in top of the news now. But uh, the governments of all the states and of the federal government can then just go into an algorithm and check anything you did when it becomes, let's say, you know, you didn't used to be able to gamble in this country anywhere but Las Vegas. You couldn't, and now you can. Well, let's say they all suddenly, certain states have laws totally against gambling and others allow you to, and some states are criminalizing you going somewhere to gamble. And, and, and they're allowed to follow you around this way. What it does is it makes um, monitoring you and then harassing you for behavior they don't like um, or embarrassing you much easier. And, and, I, and it applies to all kinds of things that you and I can't even think of right now. I, I just thought up the gambling thing because who knows how, how public opinion changes. It certainly changed in my life on that, and, and it'll change again on other things. And there stands this giant database that they can apply an algorithm with whatever the current mania is. Yeah, that's right. I'm heading to poker night tonight, so wish me luck. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things that Shang Shang, our colleague Shang Lee, is the lead attorney on this, and and uh, Rich Samp is on the brief uh, as well. But the, the the point, one of the points he makes is, what do you mean you're not searching the data? Of course you are. Just because his name wasn't returned in any of the searches you ran doesn't mean you didn't run a search on him. When you ran your algorithm in, in the in the database, you did search his his data. So don't tell me he's not being searched or that a search isn't being conducted here because it is. And I thought that was a really good point uh, that, that that Shang made. It it can't be the case that I mean it's the it's the it's the physical world equivalent of saying we didn't we didn't search your house. You know we. Uh, uh, we, we looked around and we didn't see anything and we left and therefore, you know, we didn't do a search of your house. Like, well, yeah, of course you did. <laughs> I, I know what you have. So. You have my stuff. You have all my whereabouts in your, I, I don't want you to have my whereabouts in your computer. Give it all back to me now. That that's it. That should be standing right. right there. And that's what we're asking for in this case. And, and, uh, and, and we've said before in, in other contexts, look, if if the police want to use these ALPRs to find people who are on existing lists of outstanding warrants and Amber Alerts and what have you, that is different. That's fine. We don't view that as a problem because you have probable cause for pulling those people over or or tracking the whereabouts of, of people who are already on those those kinds of lists. But not for innocent people, not for every citizen that goes by, not for millions and millions of license plates that they're tracking uh, all the time, constantly uh, in their city, because what they've said is that they're they're trying to put up a uh, a digital gated community. That's what they've said in Coral Gables. And then the other thing, John, they they've they've shared this data not only with the vendor Vigilant Solutions, which they do, but they've shared it with numerous other jurisdictions in Florida, <laughs> other towns, with the state of Florida itself, with certain federal agencies that what? seem to have a particular interest in South Florida. I don't know if you can imagine what those might be, but I'm just going to venture that the Drug Enforcement Administration might be one of those. Uh, you know, may, maybe not as much as it was in the 1980s, but still, you've got the DEA and, and other, other uh, federal agencies interested in, in having this data. So the idea and, that they're not running a search, again, you're sharing the data with other agencies and you don't, and know, you don't know what they're doing with that data, but they're definitely using it to search. And you, you, right. don't know, you don't know who's running it, but I also think that there is no chance that a company named Vigilant Solutions would be the good guy in any movie you ever went to see. <laughs> that's a great that's a great point. 
Fortunately, there's also Article 1, Section 23 of the Florida Constitution, which affords broader privacy protection even than the Fourth Amendment. So between these two things and the fact that, uh, that the guidelines document is an unpromulgated rule, I think we have some good arguments to make uh, to the Florida Court of Appeals. We'll keep you posted on this case, uh, see if we can add to our list of 15-plus wins so far this year, John. Welcome back. Uh, I uh, had I discussed earlier the problem with changing Title IX and the conflicts that will create. But I there's one thing that's going on right now uh, that is very troubling, and that is an assault on various judges, uh, largely largely for um, uh, you know judging while being textualist or originalist. We're seeing an assault from the legislature uh, and uh, on these folks. Um, there's a huge petition right now for Thomas, uh, Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas, to resign, and has a million signatures. And uh, I, I am unfamiliar with the part of the Constitution that makes uh, justices resign from online petitions. So I, I assume Justice Thomas will be just fine. But it, it's it's a straw in the wind, and it, and it's it's becoming troubling, um, and and so that is more of a uh, a messaging thing and a and a and a um, political thing. But th- there's something that ha- has occurred very recently, and our colleague Rich Samp has written about it on our website, um, and and he's got a blog on uh, an ill-considered decision revives judicial misconduct complaint. Now, some judicial misconduct complaints are very obvious that somebody, that a judge had an interest in the case, that, uh, God, well, if you're in Brooklyn, that a judge was bribed, you know, there's, there's a number. Well, of- we, we had a situation on the Sixth Circuit where Chief Judge Boyce Martin was submitting uh, reimbursements that apparently were in excess of the money that he had actually expended on his, uh, on his expenses. So exactly. that's a problem when a judge does it that. Is. And they're the sort of things that you would expect, uh, given human nature, and you'd, you'd think, oh, okay, we got to look into this. Um, but but here's what's happened. Uh, Judge Pryor uh, is a very um, well-known conservative judge, um, and uh, he's, the, he's the chief judge uh, of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. And he has been a prominent conservative, even he was a young man at Tulane uh, when Ed Meese gave the speech on um, on why originalism and textualism is better than living constitution. And, and, and so uh, that was back in the 80s. So he's been very prominent for a very long time and his judicial fight was very contentious. Um, and but he's been, an, I believe, an outstanding judge in, and uh, has been has had um, almost, um, uh, you know, he's been very upright. Uh, since he's been appointed, and he is the chief judge, and not a hint of scandal, Mark. I've never heard of anything. Um, no, and he gets, I mean, I'm just judging by my own law school, but the people that he gets for clerks, I mean, he gets the 
creme de la creme of the class every year to be to be uh, clerks. We have. I was just talking to our Ginsburg Scalia fellows here uh, last night. For the, I, I don't know, we've talked about that program on the on the the podcast or the radio show, but we we have nine Ginsburg fellows and nine Scalia fellows who come in here for, for to hear a lecture and, and have dinner once a week uh, for for several weeks in the summer. And there were there were I think three. Uh, future judge prior clerks among this among this uh, really esteemed crew that we that we pulled together so i was uh, uh, i was impressed again with the, the talent that he typically surrounds himself with yeah and i i was i i met him twice leonard leo introduced me to him when he was um being nominated and i found him just just a very gracious man and, uh, and um, i worked on his uh, i worked on his confirmation back in uh, uh, when i was in the department of justice at the office of legal policy Judge Pryor was one of the judges that uh, I had the, the privilege to work on uh, getting confirmed. So what could he have possibly done wrong uh, to have a judicial complaint against him? And certainly it must be some litigant who's accused him of stuff. No, wrong on all counts. Um, <laughs> here's what's happened. Um, so uh, both Judge Pryor and a district court judge who I'm not familiar with, but he went to Georgetown, so I'm sure he's very good, uh, Corey Mays. <laughs> of the Northern District of Alabama um, uh, have been accused by seven congressmen, okay? So not anybody who was ever before them, not anybody who knows anything uh, about what they've done on judicial, com uh, you know, what they've done judicially. Well, what they did was they hired a clerk and this clerk had been accused in law school of using racial epithets towards African-Americans in an email. And her position was that her email was hacked. She hadn't done anything like this. And I believe she had like an internship, not a clerkship with Clarence Thomas subsequent to that. Cause it's, so it's not just these judges. She's, she's been with uh, Thomas, who I don't think is prone to hiring people who have racial epithets. Uh, so well, I don't think people who use racial epithets are, are typically wanting to, to be hired by someone like Clarence Thomas. I, I, I agree. So, 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 the complaint got made. It was obviously a political thing by these by these um, congressmen. And I and, and what happened? The 11th Circuit had to recuse because they all know the chief judge. I mean, what are they going to do? Uh, oh, we'll look into this. No, they can't. Right. So it went up. To, it went up to the second circuit. It went to the second circuit because they didn't have any conflicts. And, and that's um, the normal procedure, by the way. Anytime it always gets sent to another circuit to look into. Right. Well, all this was fine. And the Second Circuit had a panel, a mixed panel, and they looked at, okay, he hired this clerk, but he but he he said that they looked into this and found nothing about it. And they he'd made inquiries basically. And then he hired the clerk. Yeah, and, and the clerk, and by the way, had interviewed her, obviously. Right. And so it's been a, a, there's been no accusations of any hiding the ball or anything like that. Um, and so the Second Circuit uh, said, hey. You know, um, we don't, there's no there there. There's nothing wrong. He's, we, we don't look into their hiring practices and, and who they, what clerks they hire. So Second Circuit's- uh, and, that's, and that's really what they focused on, John, right? They, they, didn't, they didn't say this was a good decision or that we agree with this or that, or that the clerk didn't do this. All they said was the purpose of this investigation isn't to second guess clerk hiring decisions of the federal judiciary. Right. Federal law requires immediate dismissal of any complaint, quote, lacking sufficient evidence to raise an inference that misconduct has occurred. 
and the Second Circuit Judicial Council voted unanimously to affirm dismissal of the complaint based on that statute. Okay, and so uh, so the the um, you think that'd be the end of it? Okay, and um, so well, I I thought everything was going along swimmingly, um, and. Uh, and, and judge of the Second Circuit, Judge Deborah Livingston, who she she said, listen, these complaints, the rules for judicial conduct are not a vehicle for second guessing the hire de- hiring decisions, just like you said, Mark. And um, and so both both of these judges uh, have been under the gun. And then what happens? Well, there's no right of appeal on this. The, the congressmen don't get an appeal. But. Um, all of a sudden, uh, the Committee on Judicial Conduct and Disability of the Judicial Conference of the United States revived the misconduct complaint against the two federal judges and directed the formation of a... Yeah, sua sponte, a special committee to conduct thorough and careful factual investigation. Of what? Who the heck knows? But I am very concerned that this is... that this the makeup of, of that body... Um, it is, even though the judiciary uh, is is split uh, pretty evenly between Democrats and Republicans, and conservatives and liberals, it's all liberals, uh, you know, very activist liberal judges on there. And they seem to have reached out to do this. And I'm worried, Mark, that the um, the the conflicts we've seen, even even to like someone going to to assassinate Ju- Justice Kavanaugh is now stretching maybe even into these judicial processes these what i would normally call the boring judicial po- processes of of the of the, the the judicial conduct committee i mean i can't even remember talking about the judicial conduct committee in the last 30 years no and and i uh right there with you i i share your concern and the particularly the fact that that this was uh appear to be a partisan vote against a, a judge who was appointed by a president of the other party. It just, it's not a good look for the judiciary. It isn't. And, and um, I think now Rich hints that um, Judge Pryor and, and, and Judge Mays have to recuse themselves from certain, um, not, not their uh, judicial duties of the cases before them, but other things they're on because of this. And that gives somebody a potent weapon if they don't like the judge on this or that. Um, uh, you know, maybe they're on the rules committee uh, or, or something of that nature. And um, uh, it, 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 it allows gamesmanship. It really does. That's and the to, right word. And to, yeah. And, and to reach out and um, reverse the Second Circuit. And that's the other thing. This went to the Second Circuit, which is not a circuit that is dominated by uh, Republican appointees by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and this other thing about the Second Circuit. And you said I, it was unanimous, right, didn't you? Yes, it was. And I also I have always felt that the uh, the Second Circuit and the New York Supreme Court often, uh, whether liberal or conservative, they, they take these things seriously. And I always say it's because. Because so much commercial law is done there, and you can't you can't really fool around with commercial law without ruining <laughs> a heck of a lot more than uh, the case before you. Um, and and so 
it's not like this is a, a an ideological circuit that oh, this is not an ideological circuit that can somehow um, uh, has done something in favor of of Judge Pryor for any any untoward reason. So that made it even more odd to me that the panel would would do this. I mean, um, right? This isn't it, like the say the Fifth Circuit. Uh, right. excusing the 11th circuit chief judge this is this is a completely different part of the country right and 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 um and and uh, a circuit i think that you don't it's it's doesn't get reversed a lot by the supreme court you don't see every year that the second circuit's been reversed tons of times by the supreme court you don't see anything so and this, I, this is a this is our colleague's blog post rich samp ill-considered decision revived judicial misconduct complaint at the ncla legal.org website go take a look see you next week